Good afternoon and welcome everybody. I'm happy to see so many people here this afternoon, but uh, I can tell you that uh, we will offer you a great show because we have uh, one of the great European philosophers, uh, journalists and uh, indeed speaker, uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy. And uh, uh, Bernard Lévy has spent a lot of time in the worst parts of the world where there has been war in Afghanistan, in uh, Iraq, in the Balkans, during the Balkan uh, War, Darfur. And uh, most recently, he has spent uh, uh, quite some time in Kurdistan doing a documentary. And uh, he, uh, he has also been recently, two months ago last, in Donbass in uh, eastern Ukraine. So this is the big topic today. How does it come together? ISIS, uh, uh, Putin, and the challenge of the West. And we are also very privileged to have uh, Stephen Lee Myers here to moderate this uh, discussion. Uh, <clears throat> Steve has also combined uh, being uh, a bureau chief in Moscow for New York Times for seven years. And he has also served a couple of years in Baghdad. So he has also seen this region from both directions. And I can strongly recommend his new book, Putin, the New Tsar, which is a very nice read, a very judicious and well-documented biography of Vladimir Putin. And I should also mention that uh, <clears throat> we have uh, uh, hashtag uh, ACBHL for those of you who want to um, uh, tweet about uh, uh, this event. Stephen and Bernard, the floor is yours. I believe it's up to you to start. Okay. Just a few, just a few words for, in order to introduce our our conversation. Uh, I wish to tell you first of all how happy I am to be the guest of the Atlantic Council. Uh, we don't have in France such uh, things like think tanks. This is one of the most prominent in Washington, D.C. I know, I knew Atlantic Council um, in, uh, in Kiev during the Maidan and in the post-Maidan month. Um, I felt so, so close to, to the fight, which was intellectual fight, which was waged by um, uh, your, uh, uh, the Atlantic Council there, fight for Ukrainian Europe, fight for defense of European values, fight for helping uh, brave Ukrainian patriots to defend themselves against um, a pure and fierce aggression. Um, I felt um, close to that. Um, there were not so many voices in Ukraine, in Kiev, in Odessa, in Lviv, uh, in the 
year, in the two years following Maidan, advocating um, consequently, con with consistency, uh, the fact that um, we could not respond to the demand of Europe expressed by Ukraine just by leaving her, Ukraine, face to face with an uh, overweaponed and uh, overpotent Russia. And I liked the outstanding voice uh, in which our Atlantic Council pleaded for a more, a more f a fair balance of force between Ukraine and, and Russia. I like the way in which the writings of Atlantic Council insisted on um, the, uh, the, na the, na the nature of the aggressivity of Putin beyond Ukraine, maybe with other targets. I felt close to all that, and I'm happy to be your guest today. I'm happy also to be here in, um, in America, and in DC in particular, in these uh, very particular days for a Frenchman, days of, um, of uh, sorrow, of uh, mourning. Uh, we French people, feel probably as you felt 14 years ago when you were under attack uh, on September 11. Certainly the same sort of, um, of feeling, of strength and of vulnerability, of uh, non-understanding really what is happening. Um, and um, since a few hours or days I'm here, I am so impressed by the, the feeling of solidarity, the, the extent of the sympathy, uh, the uh, impression of uh, shared values which a Frenchman can feel when he is in America in such moments of tragedy. After September 11, we were uh, uh, numerous in France. After uh, the director of Le Monde, Jean-Marie Colombani, at this time, who said, We are all Americans after September 11. And I, I see so many citizens of New York, citizens of Washington, since two or three days, who tell me in the same way, We all are French. And in these sort of circumstances, I, I touch quasi-physically how, how strong <coughs> and it, in what uh, true uh, metal of uh, noble values is made our, the alliance between our two countries. Not only alliance between administration, but alliance between uh, brother peoples, um, impression even of a twinning between the city of New York, the city of Paris. Maybe we will speak of all that. So I'm happy to be for a few days 
out of Paris in America also to save how precious for me is uh, in this time of, um, of tragedy, of horror, how precious is the, this alliance between our two, our two peoples. We, I strongly believe that in front of this war, which has been declared to us by the so-called Islamic State, which I prefer to call Daesh, which is a war with, a, with domestic France, which is a war with, a, with an external front, I strongly believe that the reaction has to be a common one. We have to, to, to react together or we will be defeated together. It's a, it's a real unprecedented since a long time threat against uh, the values of democracy, against the spirit of civilization, which we have you Americans, us French in common, and the, the reply, the reaction, strong and wise, uh, has to be uh, led in common by our two peoples and our two administrations. And uh, I'm happy to, to say it here. I cannot imagine uh, the things in another way. Uh, so I'm not unhappy. And nevertheless, I, I feel um, a great sadness also. Not only sadness for the, for the lost, for the losses of this attack in Paris, which is, uh, uh, of course, a huge tragedy, unprecedented in France since long. But I, am, I have a feeling of real anxiety beyond that. I had it before the tragedy of Paris, before last Friday because I cannot prevent myself from thinking since a few months, few years maybe, few years, let's say, that we entered into, a, we are entering in a, in a new dangerous and tragic world, tragic meaning that uh, maybe with no solution, or maybe with a very difficult solution to find. I have a certain experience now, since uh, I write books since 40 years. Uh, I try to, to, to put my life in agreement with my thought, with my thinking since 40 years. I have been in, all, in the few fields which were just mentioned, and in others, um, I have, uh, I did fight with so much heart for human rights in Eastern Europe, for the spirit of Europe when it was threatened, against the revivals of um, extreme right, 
and sometimes fascism in my country. I have a, a long experience of, um, of civil fights and of um, trying to face in a proper way um, aggressions against what I love most in the world after my, my, my private beloved, which is democracy. Never I had such a feeling as today uh, of a democracy being attacked, assaulted uh, by many sides, uh, which probably by adversaries which might have nothing in common, but who attack at the same moment with an, uh, a different but equal fierceness. And for the first time, I, I, was, uh, I was afraid for my country when I saw Front National appearing in the 80s. I was afraid for Europe when I saw um, how, with, um, how, we, how keen we Europeans were to admit the captivity of half of Europe under communism, how easy it was for a lot of us to, to accept uh, as a sort of uh, decree of destiny the fact that half of the Europe was uh, uh, cursed. Uh, I was uh, uh, anxious for the, the values in which I believed during the Bosnian War when uh, Europeans and Americans uh, accepted for so many years without reacting uh, the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, the bloodbath in Sarajevo and in central Bosnia. But never I felt such a feeling of fragility, of frailty, of what makes our lives uh, beautiful, free, uh, committed to the world, committed to an open society as today. The danger is, uh, is ISIS. It is uh, not Russia, because Russia is a great, uh, great country with a great people. Um, but Putin, who is clearly um, a threat, uh, wh whose policy is a clear and expressed and explicit um, threat on the European values. Uh, I am among those who believe that uh, Putin is much more than um, just a inheritor of the Soviet Empire, much more than a nostalgic of um, Peter the First, uh, uh, Nicolas the First, I'm sorry, uh, much more than a, 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 grand, a grand Russe nationalist. I believe that Vladimir Putin is uh, inhabited by a real uh, thought, ideology, Weltanschauung, conception of the world, which is well-built, 
which is uh, based on the solid pillars, which are not mine, which I think uh, are probably not, uh, I suppose, not uh, yours, and which are uh, meant to, to be addressed against our values. And this is a new situation, even compared to the last uh, years of, uh, of totalitarianism. So there is a, a sort of uncertain, vague, uh, badly defined feeling of, uh, of threat, which is like a black cloud above our heads us Europeans, us, you Americans, you Americans who maybe feel uh, close to French today, us French who felt Americans 14 years ago, and which we have to face with uh, as much lucidity, as much cold blood, and with as much firmness as possible. This is the last reason why I accepted with uh, enthusiasm the invitation of Adrian and of the Atlantic Council to to enter in this uh, in this discussion of this afternoon. Thank you. Um, the word is yours. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, I guess the format here is that I will uh, start with a couple of questions and then open the floor up to your questions. Um, so uh, feel free to weigh in. Uh, I'll call on you. I think there are microphones. If not, speak up loudly. Um, you said um, that uh, our administrations, meaning France and the United States, um, had a common reaction, um, uh, a united one, against a common enemy. And the question I would have for you is that there, I don't think, are any countries um, that endorse or support what the Islamic State is doing, um, either in Iraq or Syria, um, or certainly the attacks that we've seen, uh, beginning now with the, the Russian airliner, uh, the attack in Beirut, uh, and of course the tragedy in Paris as well. Um, given that, could you see that Vladimir Putin could in some way be part of that? joint response against this threat? Uh, the fact that no country endorses uh, uh, radical Islamism and the crimes of radical Islamism is not so clear. For the moment, yes. This is a sort of situation where when the, the outcome arrives to such extremes, nobody endorses, of course. But if you look at the, the, the birth of Daesh, of the financing of Daesh, of the initial support to Daesh, it is not so evident that no states were involved. Uh, there is a well-known documentation about the, the role of some Arab little state by geography and powerful by the economy who were not unhappy to see uh, Daesh rising. I remember how when uh, Kobane, the city 
of Kobane in the Syrian Kurdistan was under attack of ISIS, when a battalion of Kurdish, of Iraqi Peshmergas wanted to come and support their brothers, their Kurdish brothers of Kobane, there is one state which is member of NATO, which is Turkey, which at the same time blocked the Peshmergas who wanted to help and let in some uh, devices, some ammunitions, and maybe some people who wanted to, to, to help the other side, which is ISIS. We have here the, the case of a big state, inheritor of a great civilization, member of the Atlantic Alliance, which is Turkey, who played a game which cannot be named in other way than the game of, um, of ISIS. It was uh, six, uh, nine months ago, OK. But it was. Uh, now, can Putin uh, help in this situation? Uh, what role can he play? Can, does he, is he able to, to, to play? to play a role. We'll see. I hope it with all my heart. Because in f this question of ISIS is not a political question. We are not f confronting an, an adversary with a political agenda with some uh, concrete revendication, but uh, a nihilist uh, sort of state which uh, only um, uh, demand slogan is Viva la Muerte, who has no other program than the war against civilians and uh, the defeat of civilizations. In front of that, as we would say in France, nul n'est de trop. No one will be too much. Every, everyone is welcome on board. Nevertheless, I have some doubts about the, the willingness of the current uh, Russian administration to be a real, honest partner of this alliance against Daesh. I have a doubt, first of all, because um, of the role of Vladimir Putin in supporting, reinforcing the regime of Damascus, which is, as we all know, as it is now well known, who bears a big part of responsibility in the rise of Daesh. So how can a diplomacy, a state, at the same time, if it is still the case, support heartfully the regime of Damascus and really wish the fall of Daesh with the regime of Damascus did feed and breed and, and encourage by every sort of means. So this is a reason to doubt. The other reason to doubt is that till the last hours, Anyone who reported 
uh, with probity, with honesty about the result, the outcome of the Russian uh, participation of the operation in the sky of Syria knows that most of the Russian bombings were aimed at uh, reinforcing uh, the regime of Damascus, even when it was at the expense of the few remaining liberal forces of the Free Syrian Army, and very few of them were really targeted against the uh, bases, the centers of command, the training camps of Daesh. This is a fact reported by any honest observer of the Syrian situation. Till the last days, let's say, till the last three days, we cannot say that the track record of Vladimir Putin pleads in favor of a sincere and genuine participation to this common fight against, uh, against ISIS. Now, we'll see. Uh, history, as a certain Karl Marx said, has more imagination than the simple man, even when they are good journalists or observers, we don't know. Uh, history has imagination, so we'll see. But for the moment, I'm skeptical and I doubt. But I hope, of course. I can imagine your um, point of view on the next question, but Putin's argument um, about what's happened in the Middle East over the last decade uh, is in sum that um, foreign forces, he usually means the United States with NATO, have toppled authoritarian governments, legitimate governments uh, in Iraq, in Libya, in Egypt, uh, and then we're working, he believes, assiduously to do the same in Damascus. Um, and that when that happens, when the central authority collapses, something that's very important to him, as you were hinting at already, um, that you unleash forces of chaos, um, you, you create a vacuum that is uh, taken advantage of. You know, uh, ISIS didn't begin in Syria alone. It, it started in Iraq um, under American uh, military operation uh, with a democratic uh, uh, government in place. Um, is he wrong about that? He is not completely wrong, and Russia is a good example of what you say, and of what he, he says. The collapse of the Soviet regime, which he qualifies, as you know, the worst geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, unleashed a lot of uh, terrible forces, of which he is one of the results. The, the rising nationalism, the rising anti-Semitism in Russia, the, uh, uh, and the phenomenon Putin in general are these sort of genes out of the bottle of the, the tapped bottle of the Soviet Union. 
So it is true that when history is put into motion again, it's, uh, uh, it's not, uh, it's not um, a health walk. It's not an easy, uh, uh, it's not an easy walk. It is a contradictory process with some uh, uh, progress and with, with, with some uh, going back. But I would not regret, I never regretted one second because of Putin, the fall of the Soviet Empire. I know that uh, this is the course of history. When you freeze history for so long, where you have failed states who freeze themselves, and when this breaks, it is what we call in, in French, une débâcle. It is a world, une débâcle, which is a world of meteorology, when the, the snow uh, melts, and it is a world of politics when there is a big uh, flood, when everything floods. When you have a debacle, you have the worst and the best. The best was Sakharov, Elena Bonner, Boris Nemtsov, the best. And the worst is uh, Alexander Dugin uh, and Vladimir Putin. So this is true. In the Arab world, it is the same. When a, some, a people or some peoples at the same time or not uh, revolt, decide to try the experience of liberty, when they risk their lives for this, number one, we cannot do anything against that. We can only decide if we, if we help or if we crush or help to crush. Number two, it is a fact that, again, the, the worst and the good come in the flood. But what I would not say, never, is that um, the, the riots in Libya, the riots in uh, Syria, and the absurd war in Iraq, that they toppled legitimate states. A total dictatorship, but not legitimate state. Gaddafi uh, was not a legitimate uh, chief of state. I don't see any legitimacy in the gang who surrounds the gang, uh, the gang of, uh, of killers who surround Bashar al-Assad and who surrounded since long the Assad family. And as uh, Saddam Hussein. I was against the war in Iraq myself. I was not in favor of it for very precise reasons. But I would never have said that this military operation toppled a legitimate government. <coughs> and I would, I would like to add something else. It is true that illegitimate governments, dictatorships, can create a a feeling of apparent and short-term stability. Of course, dictatorship uh, creates a, un semblant de stability, an, a, an appearance of order. But I believe that these sort of orders, these sort of stabilities, are the most 
instable possible, that they are the, 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 the worst solution for the real um, stability of a social link. And that when it explodes, the longer has been the dictatorship, the bigger and, uh, and, uh, and uh, will be the explosion. This means, for example, that if you go to the, if you try to explain the birth and the growth, or at least the birth, and the growth also of radical Islamism, it is clearly connected with dictatorship. Uh, I know the situation in Libya rather well. During 42 years, there was no other alternative in Libya, and it was, it was aimed at, at that. The political game was aimed at that. No other alternative than Islamism. Same uh, uh, in, in Egypt. There was a common interest, a sort of um, um, St. the Dragoon, a sort of a, a fight in which you felt that the two would survive together or die together between the authoritarian regime of Mubarak and so on and the Muslim Brotherhood. It is the same. And Assad and Daesh in Syria are sorts of twins also. So no, we... Uh, I, I don't see uh, any encouragement to toppling legitimate states. I see uh, history put into movement again with the best and the worst. I wanted to ask you that a narrative has emerged uh, since September 30th when Russia began bombing in Syria that this was perhaps a, a distraction um, by Putin or Russia from Ukraine, from the conflict there. Um, and even that uh, it was an effort to ease the diplomatic isolation that um, Russia and people close to uh, Putin uh, have experienced since the annexation of Crimea, or even that it's a um, an, an effort to cover up what was a losing battle in eastern Ukraine. Um, first of all, do you, do you share um, that notion um, that perhaps it was a distraction? And what prospects, either way, do you see for eastern Ukraine now? Oh, yes, of course it was a distraction. Vladimir Putin is... Uh, is a real political player with, as I said, a real strategy. And all his um, deeds or acts are obviously connected. He is not uh, stupid enough to engage in Syria without thinking of Ukraine. Uh, now, what is the priority of Putin? On my opinion, I uh, the priority of Putin today, this is another reason to suspect the, reli the reliability of his uh, uh, alliance against ISIS. His priority is clearly Ukraine and clearly Europe. Um, if you read uh, what he says, 
you have always a great interest in reading what the dictators say, because they generally, they generally say things rather openly. If you read what his, um, his uh, organic thinkers express, like Alexander Dugin, the ideologist of Eurasism, um, there is the, this idea of uh, disaster, uh, so the, the collapse of Soviet Union being a disaster, that uh, this collapse has some responsible among which the European uh, Union, and that a revenge has to be taken against the responsible of the collapse, which is, in part, European Union. So when uh, Putin aggresses Ukraine, uh, when he makes the takeover on Crimea, when he threatens Baltic states, when he threatens Poland, when he uh, makes uh, all this dirty game with um, what he feels to be the weak uh, uh, pieces of the European chain, as Greece or Hungary, it is clear that there is a, a big agenda which is at the top of his preoccupations. Uh, I, I strongly feel that P Putin has uh, an ambition for his, a dark ambition, but an ambition for his country. This ambition has to do more with Europe than with the Middle East. In this, uh, if this is true, uh, of course, there is a, a bargain which is implied with his commitment in Syria. Bargain with, uh, with his partners, or maybe bargain with, uh, with, with um, the god of history, which, uh, as he knows, uh, has some difficulties to, to look at the same time at two different points, who has... Uh, uh, difficulties to 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 uh, to think two ideas at the same time. So there could be, and I think there is, this idea that by aggressing the Donbass, he uh, obliged the world to forget Crimea. That by intervening in Syria, he uh, helped the world to turn the eyes uh, out of uh, Donbass, and so on. But the big target is probably Europe, is probably this, this will of revenge um, against what he feels to be not only the responsible of the collapse of uh, the Soviet uh, project, but also the fatherland of, uh, of decadence, the, the, the soil of, uh, of, to speak as he does, of female values, uh, which I think to regret, by the way, but in his vision of the world, it, is, it means hell. Um, um, so there is a, um, certainly a body-to-body -body, uh, with uh, Europe as a as a 
as a cultural entity and as a political project. When I see how at the peak, at the climax of the crisis, uh, Mr. Putin invites, invites twice uh, Tsipras in Moscow. Uh, when I see how, by, we know that by many sources, how he encouraged, rather than the opposite, uh, the Prime Minister of Greece to go out of the, of the euro, I cannot prevent myself of thinking that there is this broad idea. When you see his um, relationship with a country which is not part of the Eurozone, but which is the, one of the beating heart of Europe, which is Hungary, the relationship between Orban and Putin is um, a parameter which we have to watch very carefully. This relationship warmed up in these recent months and two years. And uh, of course, it is not Eurozone as Tsipras, but it is. Uh, Hungary, I, rem I remember in Budapest in, uh, in uh, 1989, when you tell to the people of Budapest that uh, they were welcome back in Europe, they said, what do you mean? We are Europe. We are the core of Europe. We are not back in Europe. So uh, there is an attempt here again to, to, to to, to break uh, the core or to, to, to make a, a blow, to give a blow to the, to the core of Europe. So for me, this is for sure a, a priority for the, for the Kremlin today. And, uh, and Syria is uh, at least a second front and maybe a, a, a way of diverting the attention of the world. Um, I have one last question, and then I'm going to open it up. So if you want to get your questions ready. Um, it's my own view that people like Dugan actually are not uh, sources of political inspiration in, inside the Kremlin as much as um, uh, instruments that are trotted out for use when necessary um, and you know, highlighted on uh, state media, and then they disappear again. They kind of come and go. Um, but that brings me to a, a, something that you were, were, were talking about a little bit. If you look back to the Cold War period, of course, there was a, a competition between fundamentally different um, economic systems uh, or political systems. Um, today, it's not that. Russia swims in the international community to a certain extent anyway. Um, culturally, um, I think Russia, and Putin has said this, himself in an interview that I had with him, that uh, Russia is a European country. Um, so when you look at all the things you've outlined about his behavior in Ukraine, the threats and so forth, um, what is it that appeals inside Europe to these people you described as the party of Putin uh, in your own country? Um, what is the appeal? What is Putin offering as an, either an ideology or a value system uh, to, to Western Europe or Central Europe? Putin offers to, to those two things. He feeds their hatred of Europe. All those who are, 
whom I call the, the new Moscotels. All those who compose this uh, vast and uh, ill-defined Putinist party in Europe, Marine Le Pen in, uh, in France, the Jobbik party in Hungary, the former Vlams Bloc in, uh, in Belgium, uh, and so on. There is a, a vast party of uh, admirers of Putin in Europe who happen to be, uh, uh, to have in, in the center of their agenda the refusal of Europe. Nationalism, populism, uh, and refusal of what the European project means. So this is the first use of Putin. The second use of Putin is that he gives an, uh, an expression and a body of words to an ideology which is uh, based on uh, the, the idea that uh, an identity is made more by a soil and the blood than by an ID and a law. Uh, Putinism uh, breeds uh, the uh, uh, idea that um, Putin is a racist. Maybe uh, Dugin has not the importance that I believe, but what I really believe is that it is not uh, an easy task in uh, some areas of Moscow today to, to circulate when you have, uh, when you look a little uh, less white than uh, others. So racism, populism, uh, what we call in France souverainism, uh, nostalgia of order, all these values, who expressed them in uh, this part of the world in such an open way as Putin. So it is no, no surprise if, uh, for example, the uh, Le Pen, father and, and, uh, and uh, daughter, expressed so frequently and with so such a genuine genuinity, their admiration for Putin, he really says on high voice what they still sometimes say uh, rather silently, because there is still in France uh, a few laws who prevent you to say uh, a certain sort of things. So Putin gave word to all that. Uh, Putin gave word to, I remember when, when there was this uh, fake referendum on Crimea uh, after the, the violent uh, annexion of, of Crimea. Putin organized this referendum and invited some, some observers to watch the, the process of the referendum. And, uh, I remember having read an article, I think it was in the New York Times, but I'm not sure. 95% of these observers came for, from fascist or extreme rightist or very populist parties in Europe. So there is a real consistency. And Putin is a, is a master thinker today with the authority of a state with the force that it can give, 
with the money that he can fuel, I think, about Front National, uh, who, as you know, has been funded partly uh, by, uh, by Russian money. So he's the master thinker of all those who are dreaming of a white order based on uh, uh, pure nations turning their back at the abstract Europe, refusing the, the uh, mirage of cosmopolitanism and open society, all those who refuse the very idea of an open society have their daily food, uh, ideologically, from uh, Dugin or not Dugin, but Putin, from this uh, area uh, of the world. OK, we can uh, start with questions. I believe there are microphones that will come. And uh, I guess you can just identify yourself. And why don't we start way in the back? I'll, uh, I'll speak loudly. I'm just a regular citizen, a French and an American citizen. Um, you, you touched upon toppling dictators and promoting democracy. Uh, I would like you to expand on that if possible, especially after the, the back of Libya, um, which you played a certain part in uh, when you advocated for intervention over there. Um, and when we look at the situation in the region of, uh, today, um, we see that international intervention and toppling by force dictators brings um, war, brings terrorism, brings ISIS, whether it's in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Libya. Um, and it certainly doesn't bring democracy. So is, after what we've seen over the past 15 years in the region, is it still wise to advocate for armed violence, uh, armed intervention in this region to promote democracy, to promote human rights, to promote peace? I will give you the, a very simple reply. Uh, you can say that international intervention in Libya, this is the situation I know best, contributed to disorder, contributed to uh, two cells of ISIS, one in Derna, city of the eastern part of the country, and one in Sirte, which was the native city of Gaddafi and probably uh, is responsible for a, a certain amount of dead, maybe some thousand, which is a lot. This is the bilan, the result, might be the result of many things, but let's say of intervention. But what I see also, and this I'm sure, is that the result of non-intervention, which is the case of Syria, is exactly the same chaos, if not more, is not a few thousands dead, but 260,000 deads, and not two cells of ISIS uh, well isolated, but half of the country under the, the domination of ISIS. So the result of none, if you want to speak like this, I, I, 
It's your words. But the result of non-intervention is much worse than the result of intervention. Much worse. The balance is infinitely worse. Now, uh, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I believe, what I feel and believe, is that the result of intervention in Libya would have been probably, uh, certainly, um, better um, uh, the promotion of a democracy would have been uh, uh, better also if we had helped till the end, if we had not, if the, if the, the, the West and the Arab countries, the coalition who helped the Libyan people to, to revolt, to, to, not to revolt, by the way, he revolted but who helped the Libyan people not to be massacred by the dictators. It was a coalition with Arab, European, and America. The only mistake was to decide after the fall of the regime and the infamous killing of the dictators that the job was over and that everyone could go back home. There was a responsibility to pursue. There was a duty of nation building which has not been fulfilled. But about the intervention, uh, about the reaction of the world in front of the threat of a Syrian bloodbath, what we know today to be possible, which is 260,000 deaths, there is nothing to regret. Here in the front. Thank you. Uh, David Colton from the Ijiwara Group. Uh, my question starts with your opening comment about your anxiety about the future in Europe. And my question begins with, is the European project, in fact, the author of your anxiety? So for example, it is true Orban has moved wholeheartedly towards a Putinist agenda. Yet on the other hand, the Russians are supporting separatism in the UK. They've embraced the Labour Party in the UK. It's not necessarily an ideological assault on Europe so much as it is a coordinated attack to bring it down from within opportunistically on various different ideological fronts. Bottom line, my question, how much has austerity, how much has austerity since 2009 and the core problem, whether it's Hollande in France or other governments, in Greece we saw it too with the negotiations, how much has austerity and European fixation on austerity been the greatest single ally of Putinist infiltration into Europe and the cause of your anxiety? Look at Ukraine. Look at Ukraine. Uh, a policy of austerity which is, much, which is forced by the situation and by the war, which is much worse than the austerity in European countries. It does not prevent Ukrainians to continue to being uh, full-hearted Europeans. Uh, so there is no correlation. Now, if you mean that a political body uh, 
when a political body is vulnerable to some attacks from outside, it is because it is weakened from inside. This is true. But austerity is the, the form of the phenomenon. There is a much deeper weakness in Europe today than the austerity. Austerity is, of course, is very bad, is a lot of suffering. But again, look how the, Russia, the Ukrainians react to austerity with such bravery, with such courage, nobility, without um, um, uh, keeping on the, the European dream. The real weakness of Europe is the fact that the, the heart of the project is, uh, at the, has been since a few years at the edge of stopping to beat. These are the real points. The cultural, intellectual, spiritual heart of Europe is hardly beating. I was very impressed, stressed, in the last European elections, which are normally devoted to Europe, devoted to praise the values of Europe, to praise how, how good it is to, to continue building this new, unknown political entity, which is Europe. No one in France, in Germany, in Italy, speaks about that. The, in the European campaigns, since 20 years, the challengers, the competitors, speak of national problems. They never say, Europe is good. They say, Europe is better for us. They try to grasp some votes just by saying, Europe is, has some advantages for us and not for the others. I, it is a long time since I did not see a European leader praising vocally and strongly the European values as such. So this is a real problem. The other problem is that you had in America Fukuyama. We had in France, maybe Fukuyama also, by the way, but we had the the feeling after the, the also after the, the, the end of Soviet Union, we had the feeling that the, the strong and absurd feeling that Europe was done, that the European project was achieved, that its achievement was a data that we could have, you have leadership from behind, we, have, we had history from behind. We were at the back seat of the, of the train of history, sleeping of our best sleep, be, uh, sure that the European train was going on the right way, heading to its good end, that there was no effort to do, no values to build, no dangers to be, uh, to be afraid of, that there was a sense of history in which Europe was at the, uh, at the key point. This was the big mistake of our generation. It was a sort of remnant of historical optim optimism. It was maybe the last pearl of the oyster of historicism. Maybe it was our um, post-Marxism, the idea that history has a direction and that you can go to sleep, it goes to the end. But this 
was the general impression that Europe was done, that the, the godfathers of Europe had, do, had done a big job and that we had to rely on that and that it was okay. What we did not uh, know that what Europeans intellectuals and citizens uh, misconceived is that in the history of the European continent there was, there has been already a few, even a lot, of attempts of building a European entity, of uh, passing the national borders, of uh, realizing uh, um, a good empire in the sense of Dante, and that a few times already the project had been had been bred, had had grow, had had, uh, had uh, went very far, nearly to the end, and had collapsed. So the rise and collapse of the European dream is a recurrent phenomenon in the history of Europe, and we have made the mistake of not having foreseen that. So this mistake plus the, the laziness of the reason and of the imagination of Europeans, uh, of course, create a, a ground easy for the ideological rockets of the enemies of Europe, of those who want to destroy it. Can we go right here? Um, and if you could also please uh, introduce yourself. Thank you. Good afternoon, gentlemen. My name is Karina Arlova. I work for Echo of Moscow radio station. I'm from Russia. I'm Russian. So um, you said that Putin is bigger than something, probably bigger than nothing, and that he has his own ideology. But uh, what are those ideas and values that he has? Because, uh, for example, is Russia a homo homophobic country or not? Because uh, is, is, Russia? is it a homophobic country or not? Because Homophobic. Are we Russia anti-gaze? Because many of his high-ranked officials are gay. Gays. Uh, the head of the gray, the one of the biggest resource company is gay uh, in Russia. So, but at the same time, we have uh, anti-gay laws, as you know. Uh, and there are so many examples when Putin changed his mind uh, drastically. For example, in relationships with Obama, two months ago, uh, Russian officials and media suffocated with rage for Obama and so on. But today, like not, it was yesterday, he uh, holds Obama's hand in his hand so gently that you know this is heartbreaking almost. <laughs> so. And when you say that Putin supports uh, European fascists, uh, fascists, yes, he does support them uh, opportunistically, but probably he's just making friends with the enemies of his enemies. Uh, and uh, so my question is, what are those? Are there any ideas uh, in this person's, in this man's mind? Because when somebody wants to take over the world, or at least a part of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he has some ideas. Probably he's just, he has a strong itch for money and power and oversized ego. Thank you. 
the fact that uh, Putin changed mind about Obama is not very important. Obama is not um, a metaphysical uh, issue. Obama will be somewhere else in a few months. Gays is an issue. Women is an issue. Uh, races is an issue. Jews are an issue. And on all these topics, uh, Putin has ideas who, does not, who do not change. They might change apparently, but there is a, 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 a current of consciousness and of, and of uh, wording which does not change. And this frames an ideology which it is a, a specific, it, it does not look like anything maybe. Uh, I, it is always dangerous to see the present with the spectacle of the past. So uh, Russia of today is a, a laboratory when you, uh, when you have a strange chemistry with uh, uh, old Russia, uh, uh, nostalgia of communism, uh, 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 pieces of fascism, European fascism, uh, uh, the idea that uh, uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, uh, was not so bad. Uh, this uh, Putin said it, and I think he meant it. Uh, was not so bad ideologically, was good strategically, uh, had the advantage to have uh, um, uh, made the path for the uh, invasion of uh, uh, East, East Europe. All this makes an original uh, body of ideas who belong uh, to, to him, probably. And I just say, I don't say that he, want to to, that he wants to, to conquer the world. I just say that the, the vision he has of the society is not the vision which Europe breeds since the Second World War, based on the refusal of fascism, the refusal of uh, totalitarianism, the refusal of colonialism. These were the three pillars on which the European project was uh, built. Refusal of, of imperialism, colonialism, refusal of totalitarianism with all the attacks on liberty, freedoms, and so on, and refusal of fascism. Putin does the opposite. So it's a, a, a body of ideas which is adverse to the one in which I believe, which is adverse to all uh, that is open society, and which cannot be separated from a, a strategical project to weaken the other um, conception of Europe. Here we can go up here. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. I, I'd like to pursue this uh, suggestion that uh, of Putin's uh, nostalgia for the Soviet uh, Union, and uh, you mentioned this famous quote about the geopolitical tragedy. Charlie Rose asked him about that quotation, and Putin gave an explanation that's quite different than uh, people were e expecting. But uh, what I want to say is this way. Uh, obviously, our CIA is very interested in what's, uh, you know, what's on Putin's mind. Where, where is he really deriving inspiration? And their conclusion in their studies is it's from one of the uh, ideologues of the uh, white Russian period, uh, Ivan Ilyich. Uh, and uh, much more than Dugan. And so Dugan has had quite a falling out with Putin recently. So 
Uh, now, these white Russians were the anti-Bolsheviks of their period, and you can read uh, Illich's things on the net. So if uh, we're correct in that analysis of uh, who's the inspiration for Putin, then there isn't nostalgia for the Soviet period. A new ideology is a soup. In the soup, you have different elements which cook and which uh, product something else. When you had things are not comparable, but in the Germany of the 20s, you had a soup when you had pieces of uh, old uh, uh, German paganism you had the uh, 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 desire to, 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 to take Bolshevism and to turn it into another way. You had uh, uh, national conservatories and, uh, and national Bolsheviks, the, the, the Strasser brothers on one side and the people like Rochling on the other side. You had a lot of elements who were boiling the same soup and which at the end of the process made the Nazism. Uh, uh, in the France of the beginning of the uh, 20th century, at the time of the Dreyfus affair, you had a soup also, where you had elements of, uh, of uh, extreme right, Charles Maurras, when you had people coming from the extreme right, like Georges Sorel, uh, 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 who made the doctrina of the general strike and so on. Uh, um, uh, political molecules which broke in the soup, which liberated the atoms, which re-aggregated in another sense and in another order. This is the sign that history is into motion again. Today, in Russia, you have such a phenomenon. So, it is not nostalgia. Uh, it is reactivation of some old uh, uh, ideas. It is a um, um, uh, uh, connection and, and uh, the, the greff uh, connection with uh, uh, new uh, uh, wordings. Um, it is ideas coming. Uh, you, spoke of, you spoke of Dugin. Uh, Dugin is uh, very interesting. It is a mix of uh, the Prague circle of linguistic, Trubetskoy and uh, uh, people like that. It is a mix of Jean Baudrillard. It is a mix of a French uh, uh, thinker called uh, Raymond Abelio. These moments of history, when uh, a new ideology is emerging, always offer these strange mixtures of new and of old, of old reactivated by the new, of new uh, uh, engrossed by the old, and so on. So it's difficult to see exact to foresee where Putinism is, is going, very difficult to predict. But what is predictable is that uh, it is no good for Ukraine, no good for Europe, no good for the, these ideas in which I think that we believe uh, too little, which is the ideas of open society. This is true. Um, we have a hard stop at 4.30, so what I'll do is take uh, maybe three questions uh, really quickly, and then we can wrap it up. Uh, we'll start here, and then back there, and then over here. I'm Jan Ulof from Denmark, Danish newspaper. 
Um, are you worried, I would like to turn back to France, are you worried that this quest for security will lead to increased tensions with the Muslim population in France and what's the solution to that? And what do you see as a solution in Syria? And then back here. Alexis Sapchenko, private citizen. Uh, the only person who really won from the, uh, what happened in Paris was Putin because uh, Europe is willing to close a blind eye on was going on in Ukraine in order to support, in order to embrace Putin as an ally against ISIS. How plausible is the scenario that Europe is going to give up on Ukraine? That what? Europe is going to give up on Ukraine, give it back, give it to Russia. And then one last one over here, ma'am. Hi, Catherine Porter with the Leadership Council for Human Rights. Thank you, you have touched our hearts and more importantly, you've touched our fears. I am very interested that the obvious is never stated, and it's been stated today by Putin, that the problem with Daesh has to do with Turkey and the fact that Turkey continues to provide openings and borders and that we are not addressing the real needs of the Kurds. We're not giving them the weapons and in that, in that, President Obama is complicit in what has happened in, in Paris. Another question? No. I think we have uh, about five minutes to answer. Okay. That's three already. Start with us. No, okay. Uh, about the refugees, uh, yes, I'm, I'm worried because I, I believe that um, to close our doors in Europe or in America, you have also a, a populist in this country with, who is very uh, vocal and outstanding who propose, to, who, who says that uh, refugees, migrants are a problem as itself, would be the worst solution. Uh, even if it is proved that, that some of the attackers of last Friday in Paris uh, came as refugees under the disguise of uh, 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 seekers of political asylum, the worst reply would be to uh, break with our tradition of hospitality. Why? Because when you, have to, when you deal with such a situation, you have to there is a political, a political obligation, which is to isolate the harm wrongers, which is to put them in minority, which is to, to, to make allies and not to make enemies, and so on. So uh, for me, the, the attacks of, in Paris make even more, more urgent and more important the the address to, to the people outside Europe, um, to the uh, even more urgent and important, the, the expressing of our brotherhood in citizenship, even more important is the idea that if they embrace the values of citizenship, the values of open society, the values of, uh, of freedom, 
we are open to them and they are our brothers. This is the lesson which America gave to the world since uh, decades uh, and to Europe also. And it would be a shame, it would be too sad if Europe today took the other path. Am I afraid for Ukraine? And am I afraid that uh, what we said at the beginning, that this Syrian affair might work as a diversion and could help Putin to put his hands on Ukraine? I cannot imagine that. I don't dare to, 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 to imagine that. It would be a real shame if we, if we were so blind, if we were so single-minded, if we were so uh, stubborn and stupid as to be unable to continue watching what is happening in Ukraine under the pretext that we are caring about ISIS, then we will be the last of the last. I cannot uh, uh, imagine the public opinions of Europe and of America um, uh, taking this historical responsibility. I know that we are eaten by short-termism. I know that uh, uh, the light of history has this uh, tendency, which I said before, to fix on one point but not to this extent. And by the way, uh, there was one um, example of the opposite, which was Angela Merkel, great lady, when everybody thought that she, she had used her credit, her political credit, international and domestic, with the Greek crisis. Remember, everybody said, Angela Merkel will go to the end of her mandate, uh, uh, creeping and silent because she has used all her political, she has all her cards. It is the moment she chose to take this incredible and great move about refugees and give ex example to the rest of Europe. So political credit is not a scarce resource. Um, political visibility uh, is not uh, a destiny and a curse. We can, human beings and Europeans and Americans, are still able to count till two. We can look at what is happening with ISIS and look what is happening in Ukraine. And I cannot imagine that we should be so shameful as not be, to be able of that. Last point, uh, the Kurds. Uh, I'm happy that you mentioned them, that you pronounce their name, because when you ask, when you, when you wonder what is the solution against in front of ISIS, uh, how to defeat ISIS, uh, there is one people who gives the example, who concretely battles, who concretely resists, and who wins, and it is the Kurdish people. Because what is maybe not often uh, stressed, at least in Europe, is that uh, in all the battles which the Kurds 
waged against ISIS since one year. No one was won by ISIS. The Kurds defeated ISIS each time. They defeated in Kobane, the Kurds of Syria with the help of a battalion of Kurds of Iraq. They defeated ISIS in Kirkuk in the last spring. They defeated ISIS nearly without battling, nearly without combating last week in Sinjar. We, the Kurds, give the proof, which is a great lesson for those who have eyes to see and for those who in America and in Europe have ears to listen. They give the proof that the ISIS is not as strong as we imagine, that it is not his, this moving force, irresistible, that we tend to figure, that they are strong only of our weakness, and that when they face, when they face poor hostages uh, with eyes banded and with hands tied, they are strong. They are awfully strong. They, 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 they brag in front of the camera, and they do these disgusting acts. But when they have in front of them some valiant and brave Peshmergas or Syrian Kurds, they are no longer brave. They are each time coward, and they leave the battlefield nearly without combating. This is what happened in Sinjar last week. Everybody was saying Sinjar is a fortress. It will need a, a huge military force to penetrate in the fortress of Sinjar and to bring the Yazidi back home. Today, we, we, see, we say, at least in France, that uh, uh, the war against ISIS would be, uh, will be a very long and difficult battle because it is a, a heavy a force with a huge number of tanks and of heavy weapons. By the way, we never saw the tanks and the heavy weapons in Kobane. We never saw them in none of the front line with the Kurds. The only weapon which the ISIS used is uh, suicide trunks. They have no longer these heavy weapons which they took from the Iraqi army, and they don't have them because the uh, airstrikes destroyed or paralyzed them. So ISIS is weak. ISIS is a paper tiger. ISIS, if Mr. Obama and Mr. Hollande and Mr. Cameron and others and Arab countries decide, ISIS will be very quickly defeated. It can take various forms. It can take the form of helping the Kurds in a much, much more decisive way. It can be, by the way, of increasing the number of our special forces on the ground. But in any case, if we decide to win this war, it will be won. ISIS is not Hitler. It might be Hitler by some aspects of the ideology, 
but it is not comparable to the force of this uh, horrible empire of evil, which was the Germany under, uh, under Nazism. ISIS is a fake state. ISIS is the ghost of state. ISIS is a, a paper tiger. And thanks to the Kurds to have demonstrated that to us. Okay, We're out of time. Thank you very much for a very insightful uh, conversation for answering the questions.